Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help make substantive disciples for the local church. This week, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson in a sermon that he gave in 2014. The sermon was given as a part of a series called Questions. In this series, he was going through questions which people at High Point felt like they needed pastoral direction on. In this particular week, Nick was discussing sexual orientation within the church. How should we think about this? What should we do in our lives personally as we wrestle with these kind of issues? How should we love our friends and neighbors in the midst of various sexual orientations? Take a listen. The questions that came up related to this in the church as people ask questions about um, orientations and Christian faith in the church included basically these. How do we understand and relate to people of different orientations? How do we address same-sex marriage? And how do we respond to the court's actions on these things? How are are gays welcome at High Point? And what is done to embrace and reach out to them? How do we talk to someone who says that they are Christian and um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered? How do we put together gender roles, transgender and homosexual? How do we, and how does God feel about that? Um, and there were a number of other questions, and then there were a lot of people that voted for this. I think it was the, it got the second most votes for people wanting to hear about this. I think it's important. I want to point you to some of the stuff I've already said because I'm not going to be recovering it this morning. Um, two years ago, I preached a sermon on this where I focused specifically on the biblical passages that refer to homosexual behavior and um, the science as it stood at that time related to what we know about same-sex attraction and other orientations, okay? And I spent 45 minutes on that, and honestly, we haven't found out anything new in two years, scientifically, and the Bible hasn't changed. And so um, we, we put up a blog. It's already up on the Engage and Equip blog um, that has a list of those things, and you can click on them and listen to those sermons. And we did add the one on sexual ethics for everybody onto the blog to make sure that that punched you in the face, too, if you're heterosexual. I do think the best paper on the science, and it is, there's a link to it on the blog, is this one called Stanton Jones, by Stanton Jones called Sexual Orientation and Reason. It's um, a PDF document. It's, it's a really good summary of what we know about sexual orientation from the scientific or counseling perspective. Um, what we will do is this. Um, next Sunday, after the second service, we'll have a lunch in probably Micah E., um, where I will make myself available for a couple of hours or as long as people want to talk or yell about this. Um, and it'll give you a week to think about it, go to the blog, read whatever you want to read, prepare yourself, and then come and have a meaningful discussion. And um, so bring food and opinions and questions and what whatnot. Um, so in order for, for partly because I don't have two hours to talk about this, I want to give you the summary very directly of what I said in that sermon two years ago, and that is this, that what the Bible seems to say about homosexual behavior is what it does say. Um, which is, and I like Graham Cole's summary the best, that, that homosexual sex is sinful and that homosexual or same-sex, homosexual desires or same-sex attraction are disordered desires. Now, the minute you say that as a Christian, you have to immediately follow up and say the, this about the larger issue, and that is this, that all human beings are created in God's image and in their sexuality and gender, and, and sexuality and gender are part of that original and sinless creation. Yet all human beings are fallen and in a disordered condition. All humans struggle with a God-given and yet disordered drives and orientations, including our sexuality, and sexual purity is one of the great battles of every human life. Um, One of the things I said in 2012 was this. 
um, what heterosexual Christians are experiencing in monogamous marriage is not sexual wholeness. Um, all of our disorder, all of our desires, drives, and orientations in sin have fallen into some kind of a disordered state. You just ask people who've been married for a while if what they're experiencing sexually in their marriage is everything they thought sex would be or everything it's advertised to be, right? And the answer by anybody who's at all honest is going to be, of course, no. Of course not, right? And that's because everyone, biblically speaking, has a God-given gift of sexuality and gender and yet is also experiencing a disordering of that orientation and gift in the sinful condition. One of the ways um, Linda Seeler, who is um, a woman who has had, who's, who has experienced trans- transgendered feelings and same-sex attractions and now claims to not have those anymore and is a staff worker for Chi Alpha at Purdue University, says it this way. She says, think about um, dropping a wine glass on the floor. You've probably had this happen. I mean, I've broken them on the counter. Um, you can drop 35 wine glasses on tiles, and all 35 of them will break, right? And probably not one of the 35 will break the exact same way. Human beings are enormously complex mixtures of orientations and drives and desires and reasonable capabilities and bodily functions and so on, and they're all mixed together, and when you break one, you almost never break one the same way. And only with a biblically profound sense of human brokenness can a Christian in a non-self-righteous way refer to same-sex attraction as a kind of human brokenness. Does that make sense? Um, One of the things that I've found in talking with people who are very adamantly pro-gay in the sense that um, homosexual sex and attractions should be dramatically affirmed for the good of the people who possess them or experience them, is that um, you, usually what goes along with that is a belief that you cannot make valid moral decisions unless you have personal experience with something because empathy is the most important moral intuition. Okay? It's generally true of people of more progressive or liberal ideologies, but generally speaking, there's this idea that unless you've experienced it, you can't morally talk about it. Now, in terms of moral philosophy, that is false. Okay, that's not true. Oftentimes experience makes us reason less rationally and less truthfully about moral questions. However, not experiencing something also makes us more flippant and oftentimes more likely to make moral mistakes because we don't take the time to think about things carefully enough. And so one of the things I need some of you to know or some of you need to know in order to be able to listen to me even talk about this is that I have been wading through this very specifically um, for since I was like 19, okay, even maybe a little bit before that. Um, my first day on campus as a freshman, the orientation expressed that every freshman had to go to, it was absolutely mandatory, had two main points, have as much sex as you want to, but you probably should wear condoms, and they're free at the medical center or your RA or whatever. And two, if you don't absolutely affirm homosexual behavior in every possible form, you are absolutely bigoted and have no place in the university. Okay, my mom paid for that. She's still kind of aghast about it. Um, 
Um, my TA in my, the first class I was a TA and my TA supervisor was a not openly gay man that um, very, um, we had a close relationship and he had a very, we had a very interesting dynamic after a while. I was served at a Christian camp in which um, you were assigned a prayer partner of the same gender when you were there. And the two years that I was in the resident staff, both of the men that I was paired with were men that the first thing well, not both of them the first thing. One of them, the first thing he confessed was, would you please pray for me about the fact that I'm attracted mostly to men? And it seems very strong. The other one actually interacted with me in a way that was unexpected and uninvited that was very profound for me. And it, it wasn't so much that I was grossed out by it, but it actually, it, at first that was my response. But after that, my response was, this is a guy who knew the social risk at a conservative Christian camp to erotically come on to another guy that he knew darn well, had not said anything, but his, our closeness of friendship was so connected with his feelings of same-sex attraction that he didn't have the ability to restrain himself from doing it. And I saw the embarrassment that he felt and it was very crushing for him and very off-putting for me, and um, so on. And then all through college, Alexa and I had very close relationships with gay and lesbian people. I, of course, was leader of the Christian group, which, of course, the gay group, we were supposed to be mortal enemies, and there was this kind of sense of mortal enemies as well as like profound respect because we were the two groups that actually stood for something as a minority and were hated by most on the campus. So there was this kind of like collegiality between the groups, and it from 1995 to the present, I've probably read a couple, two or 3,000 pages on this. My closest friend in seminary came out as a gay man. Um, we were really close my first semester. Then he went to Oxford to study Foucault. I still didn't put it together. And then he came out the next semester to this other friend. The three of us were best friends. And I've been friends with him for all the time since then. I saw him just this, a few months ago in Colorado when I was there celibate, evangelical gay man. We've written hundreds of pages of emails back and forth talking about how we reflect on these things and what celibacy means and what friendship means and what intimacy means and what these things mean. So you cannot believe what I say, but if you think that I think these things because I have not been close with gay and lesbian people and transgendered people and that I don't care about them and so I think these things because I'm a bigoted fundamentalist Christian, you may be the bigoted person. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Sorry that took a while, but there's some people I think that maybe needed to hear that. One of the things that we have to, we have to recognize when we try to relate to same-sex attracted folks and people of other orientations is that um, this is part of a much bigger thing that is a cataclysmic cultural revolution that has happened in our country um, that we now refer to sometimes as the culture wars, but it has not been going on since disestablishment in the 1960s. It has been going on dramatically in earnest since at least the 1880s and the start of the progressivist movement. And some things related, it, I mean, it, it goes back to Emerson and before that. It started with how we looked at the poor, but then it changed with how we looked at all of humanity and then it changed with how we treated all people and what people really needed from culture and society. And I can't get into all that. I'll talk a little bit more about that maybe next Sunday at the luncheon. But there's two things that it has absolutely produced, and probably not intentionally from the beginning, but absolutely embraces now. And one is a dramatic over-sexualization of human beings. 
human sexuality is a drive, and as a drive, it can be deadened or elevated. And we have a culture that dramatically intensifies and elevates sexuality so that sexuality gets way out of proportion in our experience. C.S. Lewis writes this paragraph about it. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country, something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Right? And some of you realize this. For some of us, um, we find food in our hands and find ourselves eating it and not even hardly knowing how we got there. Okay? If you don't understand sexuality similarly, and if you don't understand we're in a cultural place where we've inflamed it dramatically, then, it, then we go, here's what, here's what the result is. The Christian sexual ethic becomes absolutely unthinkable. Right? Because the Christian sexual ethic is either unmitigated monogamy in a single marital relationship as long as they both are alive or absolute celibacy and abstinence. That's it. Right? Now, if you're therefore not married or if you're married and your spouse can or will not perform, most Americans intuitively believe, therefore, that the Christian sexual ethic is completely unreasonable. The idea that you could live for years and not have sex with anyone sounds insane. It sounds like the worst form of abuse to deny somebody one of the most intense bodily functions since mainly what we are are people seeking the expression of ourselves. And because sex is a heightened physical experience and a experience of closeness and companionship, to erase someone's capacity to that sounds like erasing their humanity. And because we're implicit atheists and don't really believe in a glory that lasts forever that will dwarf any pleasure or experience that could be had in temporal sexuality, the level of desperateness that we feel to make sure we suck all the marrow out of life is so powerful. And because sexuality seems like one of the main ways we do that, the idea of the biblical ethic on sexuality seems absolutely unthinkable and therefore completely undoable. And then therefore to look someone in the eye who, who doesn't desire to marry someone of the opposite gender to fulfill their sexual desires and to say, then your other option is lifelong unmitigated celibacy. Sounds like the most terrible lack of empathy ever unleashed upon the earth. And what I would argue is that it's actually not because it is, but because in the cultural revolution in which we live and the over-sexualization that we've produced, it feels that way because of what we've done to ourselves. The other is that we live in a culture of absolute self-definition. Our meaning does not come from the outside that we discover. Our meaning comes from the inside, and we define our own lives. A generally, generally Supreme Court justices are supposed to be well thought of, but this, 
Anthony Kennedy, like, literally wrote this on paper, okay? That at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. This isn't a decision about abortion, and why the right to take somebody else's life if that life is inside you is fundamental to liberty. Because you decide what that is. And if fundamental to liberty is that you get to decide what it is, and if you decide it's just tissue, then it's just tissue. And if you decide it's a human being, then it's a human being. But you decide. Now, it would be one thing if he had written, which I also don't agree with, because governmentally there can be no higher authority than the individual human being because of our view of liberty, we have no better option than to dot, dot, dot. That would have been wrong, but coherent. This is not good philosophy. It is part of our cultural ethos that we believe we can define ourselves from ourselves. And if you believe that, then nobody can tell you what to do with anything. If you make your own meaning rather than discover it, then by definition, there can be no external ethic that's imposed on you. Now, what this has produced in in the pro-gay movement, and and I'm not saying this, I'm saying this out of a pastoral concern, for our interaction with same-sex attracted people. What this has produced is same-sex attracted folks have ridden the wave of this disestablishment, but they've also been the figurehead to take the brunt of the pushback. So over the last 50 years, mainly in the last 20, the gay movement has enjoyed enormous success but also been the frontline embattled wave so that they've taken the most casualties. The most vicious counterattacks of people trying to push back on this wave of disestablishment have seen gay and lesbian people and their advocacy as one of the as one of the most out-of-bounds sort of things and as the figurehead for this transition. And so They've aimed their guns at them disproportionately. And so so you have conservative Christians not talking about massively promiscuous heterosexuals or how we dress our daughters like whores during Halloween or how we do all kinds of extremely unchristian things. How we choose ridiculous parenting models that have nothing to do with what Scripture teaches and so on. What we've done is they've, and mainly preachers, who are theologically conservative and would consider themselves biblical, have aimed their guns at these folks, which means gay and lesbian people in the gay movement have enjoyed enormous success, but have felt enormously embattled and taking, taken many casualties. And listen, that's why you're afraid of them. Because when you are fighting a battle line and another army charges, and you kill 70% of them, and then they take you over and you surrender. You think they're going to machine gun you. And so it's terrifying. And there's good reason for that, because now there are seven or eight or nine or 12 Christian organizations, mainly that in some way are involved in weddings, that have now lost their property, 
have been brought up on human rights violations, have been told to intellectually and morally re-educate their employees. Something that sounds like it's straight out of 1984. The dystopian novel of Big Brother telling you how to think. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of Christians who are biblical, historically Orthodox Christians, are very concerned. And here's, here's the problem. We don't get to act scared. We act on the basis of our spiritual and moral convictions in a relationship to what we believe is right. We do not get to lash out and play games and hurt people because we're afraid of them. And, and I do not believe that the main fear is homophobia. I think that's ridiculous. The fear is the fear that those who are oppressed, when liberated and given power, usually become the worst oppressors. That's the fear. And that's why there's so much political acrimony both ways. Because same-sex attracted people fear that if the wave fails, they are toast. And therefore, it must succeed. And a lot of conservative people and a lot of Christians believe that if the wave succeeds, we're toast. And that produces enormously immoral and virtuous behavior in our part. Especially when we perceive our counterparts across, across the way as engaging in immoral behavior. The Christian sexual ethic is completely reversed to that cultural trend. It is, it is completely static throughout time and throughout the Bible. It is very definite. I want to say three quick things about this. One is that it does clearly say in this passage, without hesitation and without undue recrimination, that homosexual sex is undifferentiable from other sins. Not only is, is homosexual sex put in here as a sin, it is put in here with other sexual sins and other non-sexual sins. And it comes after a claim that people who sue other people, namely within the church, and drag Jesus' name through the mud through suing other Christians, those people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And similarly, <laughs> thieves, People who are idolatrous, people who are greedy, and people who are sexually immoral will also not inherit the kingdom of God. The phrase, the wicked, is a fairly technical biblical phrase that refers to people who live unrepentantly within a particular dynamic. It is not referring to people who have an episode of greed, where they should be generous, they're not, they were greedy, you're going to hell. That's not what that means. And one of the ways to see how that phrase is used is to read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about the righteous man, and the wicked. And it refers to them as directed, focused, chosen, unrepentant lifestyles. And that's important to recognize. So homosexual sex is not differentiated as sin from other ones, but it is straightforwardly called sin with all the others. And it is also straightforwardly said that to embrace that without repentance or change or desire for anything else leads to a eternity or to an end of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, the second thing 
that this, to take from these verses is this. If you look closely, internal orientation change is not promised. When it says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified, it does not actually claim there that the internal experience changes. It doesn't. In fact, in a few verses, it's going to assume they don't change. What it says, when it says that there has been a change, it presumes the category of the wicked. That is, a directed, unrepentant, straightforward, I'm doing this. You can't tell me not to. I define who I am. I do what I want with my own body. I'm doing this. He's saying we were changed from that course. The course of, I'll be greedy if I want to. I'll be a thief if I want to. I'll sue who I want to. I'll have sex with who I want to. Two, taking all of those desires and all those things and sublimating them under the lordship of Jesus and living the way Jesus has created us, discovering our meaning from Christ's kingship rather than defining it for ourselves. He says, that's what changed. You were washed from this. You were counted just. You were placed. You were sanctified. You were set apart as holy under the kingship of Jesus. Right? And you, and you were put under the name of Jesus and you were empowered by the spirit of Jesus to live in that. It actually does not say you no longer want to be greedy ever again. And if we looked at any of the other things in the list other than just homosexual orientation, we would have already known that. Because if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, did you stop having any unwarranted Sexual desires. If you did, we really ought to switch places <laughs> because I did not experience that, right? Did you experience an immediate change to no longer be greedy or selfish or to lash out at other people and get justice when they hurt you, i.e. lawsuits? Did, did you, because I did not experience that. What I experienced was a new king over those things. I experienced all those things remaining, but I experienced a new king that told me what to do with them and a new power to rule over their unruliness. That's what I, that's what I experienced. And that's actually what the verse says. That I was forgiven of my actions in line with those things. I was set apart for a new lifestyle under a new king, and I was given the spirit of God so that I could live towards Jesus rather than towards those orientations and desires. That's what that verse says. That's what I experienced. I bet that's what you experienced. And, but for some reason, we tend to use this passage to tell gay people that their orientations are going to change because it says you were washed. It, change is assumed. Therefore, it can happen. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying this verse doesn't prove it happens. We're clear on that? This means yes, this means no. Okay, we got one not. Great. <laughs> the third thing I think we should say from this passage is this. This passage actually does tell us, and this is very dangerous to talk about this, and I realize that, okay? But this passage actually does tell us why these sins are wrong. And therefore, it actually tells us why acting on same-sex attractions with homosexual sexuality is wrong. It is also the reason all the other sins mentioned here and all the other sins in the whole Bible that there are are wrong. And that is, um, 
there's a few reasons there. One is, you'll know in the first verse that Paul recognizes theologically that you, your life has a purpose, and therefore your body has a purpose, and you are ethically required to do with your body what it's for, which isn't defined by you, and what your body is for is not a reference to what you can do with your body, but why your body was made. So, for example, take, take a sedan, okay? You got this car, and it was created for a purpose. That is locomotion, right? It was, it was made to drive places. And it was made to drive places seating somewhere between one and usually about five people, right? Okay. Now, if you've ever been on a mission trip to South America, you know that these cars will hold about 11, Right? Like, I've been to India. A Honda Hero, like a 100cc motorcycle, will hold six. Okay? And some groceries. All right? Now, the sedan was not actually made to hold 11. That's why it has five seatbelts. Right? You can use it. You can put people in the trunk. There's all kinds. And you can hit people with it. There's all kinds of things you can do with that car that instrumentally that car will do. But it is not teleologically, in terms of its intention, why it was made. And you see, what this passage and many others assume is, we are not, when it says, we talk about doing what our body is for, that does not mean whatever we can do with it. It means that your body was created for a certain purpose, and you are ethically obligated before God to use your body for what it's for, Part of your embodiedness is your sexuality, and you are required morally by God to use your sexuality for what it's for. That's why it's a problem in our culture that nobody knows what it's for. How is a whole generation of young people, or anybody, going to use their sexuality for what it's for when nobody knows what it's for? Right? Another one, the second thing is, is that there's a very strong claim of our union with Christ. That is, that when you become a Christian, you come into spiritual union with, this, with the Spirit of God, which means whatever you do, you take Jesus with you, which is the logic, his logic here of whether or not you can go to a prostitute. Because you might think that's really awful, but the men in Corinth in the first century didn't. It was just part of life. Just part of life. Right? You have sex with your wife, she can get pregnant, then you have responsibilities. Right? It's much cheaper to go to a prostitute. And it was part of most men's life ever since they were a kid, and then they became a Christian. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to any of these ancient cities. The, 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 the brothel is like on Main Street. It's not exactly hidden in the back lot somewhere. Okay? And so these men just, it's just part of life. It's like going to the grocery store. And Paul's like, when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible promises, came to live inside of you. You are in union with God himself. So whatever you do, you take God with you, okay? Which means, now listen, this, on one level, this has nothing to do with same-sex attraction, does it? This has to do with your attitude towards sin, doesn't it? Every time you do something you were not created to do, you, you're Christian. You are dragging God into that. Now, you think the atonement is amazing? When Jesus died for all your sins? 
Imagine the condescension and the humility of God to be united with a creature that after he justified him was going to drag him in his union with that person all over the place. That's another sermon for another time. The way this relates to our sexuality is you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What sexual actions are legitimate for a temple of the Holy Spirit? Our union with Christ makes it more morally important that we do with our sexuality what it's for. And then um, there's the whole issue of sexuality and spiritual union of people who have sex with each other, coming from the idea of two becoming one flesh in Genesis 2.24. I don't have time to get into all that. There's also the issue of sexuality being a certain kind of sex because it's between two people, and it's embodied, and so it's, it's, um, it's blowout. Like, what it produces in terms of effects on people negatively when it's misused is more potent because of how it affects us embodiedly and with another person and so on, which actually heightens it. He's saying there's some sins that just don't have this kind of blowout when you do them. But there's something about sexual immorality that actually makes it not worse morally, but worse functionally. Right? And then lastly, when you were saved by grace, that salvation was pure gift. Okay? It was pure gift. That does not mean that that action does not produce moral obligations for you. It still does. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel where um, there's a guy who owes the master like a million bucks and he wipes out the debt, right? And then he, that guy who gets forgiven goes out and chokes some guy for owing $50. And then when the master finds out, he like throws the guy in the tower and his family and like, and you're kind of like, whoa, retroactive debt forgiveness. What's up with that? That's not okay. Right? Why was it okay? You see, the master believed that even though he forgave the debt, that forgiveness produced a moral obligation in the person who received the gift. I think a lot of Christians don't think about that. Paul can say that your salvation was received totally as a gift, and yet, because Christ died for you, you are totally obligated to him. And therefore, your body is totally obligated to him. You can't do what you want with your own body because God is a co-owner of it, and you have to use your body for what God has prepared for you to do, says Ephesians 2, right? We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to do the works God has prepared and beforehand for us to do. And I could go on and on and on, but, but you see, if you read this passage in its context, it not only tells us the ethical standing of homosexual behavior, but it actually tells us why our sexual sins of all kinds are actually wrong. And it gives like seven reasons. Hello again. So that first 37 or so minutes was the first half of the sermon that he gave at 9 a.m. And the next 36 or so minutes that we're going to listen to is the second half of the sermon from second service. The reason behind this was both of the sermons went about an hour and eight-ish minutes long. And so during the first service, he was able to talk a lot more about the doctrine underneath the various applications. And then in the second service, he was able to get in more to the various applications that we should have for our lives. So in this particular podcast, we have the best of both worlds. So the first half was from that first sermon where he's talking about those doctrinal things. And then the second half is where he's going to start to talk about some more of the applications for our lives. So continue onward. So then the, the pastoral question then is, okay, so on the basic pastoral questions, how do we live this out faithfully? Um, 
Some of you have heard me say this before. I think that the human body is a good metaphor for our manner. So some really kind of fundamentalist Christians, the fight and fundies, right? They're like crabs. They're like really hard on the outside. Like their skeleton is out here and they're going to get you. And they're like, you could hit a crab and not crush it. And you're like, man, you're kind of tough. But you're also, nobody wants to hug you, right? They just want to boil and eat you, right? It's maybe too close a metaphor. Anyway, the point is that that's, we're not meant to be like that. But the other thing is to just not be tough, to just be a slug. Everybody just pushes you around. You just accommodate. You can't stand up to anything, right? Think about the metaphor of the human body. The skeleton is on the inside. So we have the capacity to hold and love and nurture, and we're soft, and we can hug, and all this kind of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff that we can do physically that's nice, but if somebody's like, oh, you're soft, I bet I can push you around, and they, and they, they get past that quarter or half inch or 14 inches of soft, <laughs> and they find bone under there, right? I think that's what a convictional Christian is like. When people run into us, they feel a certain amount of compassion, love, softness, if you like. There's something that doesn't hurt. But if they think that because we're empathic and because we love people, that they can use our empathy and love for them to manipulate us into accepting propositions that we believe are false, they've got another thing coming. And we are okay with living in the tension of, I believe this is true. And I'm called to love and serve you sacrificially, and I'm okay with working that out in tension, even if you're not. Now, the four pastoral questions are these. The first is, is same-sex attraction a choice? There's a lot of people that ask me. Now, some of you who went to university, you're like, that's totally not, that's a stupid question. Listen, people, a lot of people ask this question. In fact, people with same-sex orientations come into my office and ask me that question, who themselves have same-sex attractions. It's not passe to any succeeding generation. And I, here's the thing. I don't think that that's the right question. I think the right question is, is it a conscious choice? Not is it a choice, but is it a conscious choice? Because here's the thing. So I was speaking in California two weeks ago, and we were driving home, and it was this really windy road, and one of the kids threw up, and, it was, and, and I got, we get to this place, and I went to get out my wallet because I was going to pay for lunch, and I couldn't buy my wallet, and I was like, oh, stink. I can't find my wallet. And I was like, Stan, I left my wallet. The thing, and I, he said, are you sure you brought it with you? I said, yes. I said, look, I said, I can see it in my head. Picking it up off the table and putting it in my backpack so I wouldn't forget it. So I, it was, I knew it was in this backpack. It's not here right now. I don't know where it is, right? He's like, well, there's no sense in driving an hour back now. If they find it, they'll find it. If they don't, they don't. Let's just go back to the right. So we get back to the house. I go into my room that I was staying in Stan's house, and there's my wallet. And here's what you need to know about your life. You have thousands of memories that are not just propositional, like sentences you remember, or, or word descriptions, but are actually pictures in your mind, video, that your mind made up. Okay? When I was an undergrad, we would, we would interview people in their 70s and 80s about their experiences when they were young to just do history, right? I was a history major, and we would, we would interview people, and they would talk about, oh, I remember when they dug that quarry, and we used to roast hot dogs down there and shoot fireworks when I was 17, and blah, 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 right? And you'd be like, oh, that's a beautiful story. You write all notes down, right? But then as historians, we had to go and check, right? And we'd find out that, like, she was 17, and this year the quarry wasn't dug for 10 more years, and, like, it was, but in her mind, it was so clear. And that's not, not just old people. That's us, it's everybody. There is, there is just no, listen, when was your, how old were you with your first real memory? Which may not even be real. Right? I'm like seven in mine. Right? And so, so here's the thing. 
I think that the scientific evidence actually points towards same-sex attraction for the majority of people, not all of them, but for the majority of people being produced in a child's development. However, as far as I can tell, it can develop in a number of different ways that's very difficult to control, very hard to anticipate, and has nothing to do with the conscious choice of children or their parents. And here's why I think that. Because you're like, well, why would you think that? Well, here's why. Because we spent a couple hundred million dollars now on studying homosexuality, and we still have not found an inborn cause for it, right? So that was either money very badly spent or a question with a very difficult answer, right? Now, in the, in the most recent twins registry study of twins, where they study one identical twin, if one identical twin is gay, is the other gay, which was done in Sweden, which is a very gay-accepting culture, maybe the most gay-accepting in the world, the correlation if one twin was gay, the other was gay, was only 10%. Now, most of you probably remember 50% from the LeVay study in 93, or 92, I can't remember now. It's not. That's never been replicated scientifically. And in the ones that have more scientific samples, it's much lower, as low as 10%. And, that, and these are kids with identical genetics, lived in the same home, had upbringings with the same parents. And yet, you got one gay, you got only 10%, the other one's gay. It is a crapshoot, okay? And the people who experience same-sex attractions, have n there is no connection to any conscious choice for the vast majority of them. Now, there are some people, especially some more feminist lesbians, that have actually written publicly that they chose to become lesbian. But it's a fairly small group of people, and it's almost always women. For some reason, women's sexuality is just more fluid than men's. I don't know why, Okay? But it's important to recognize that because in that sense, you still can believe that it's developmental, but that it's really not anybody's fault, which I think is probably true. The second is, is change possible for same-sex attracted people? The reason why I think this is important is, A, I get asked all the time by same-sex attracted people and non-same-sex attracted people. And the other reason is almost everything that you've heard publicly about this is actually false. Sort of. The short answer to can same-sex same attracted people change is yes, for some, but most do not experience change. Now, notice I did not say change isn't possible. I just said most don't experience change because how do we know something different that we could try wouldn't work? We don't ever know that, right? You have to be scientific about this. What we do know is most people who engage in it do not experience change or not enough change that they feel themselves as though they can function heterosexually, okay? Now, however, there are lots of people who have experienced predominant same-sex attractions who function very well heterosexually later. Now, why is that? And then other people who just can't move at all. Just, just no change at all, no matter what they do. Um, why is that? And, and the, here's the, the best reason. And now you look at me like you're puzzled, like, Nick, I thought nobody changed. Here's the thing. Can you imagine if you had had predominant same-sex attractions and you really went through a process where you really did change and you were functioning perfectly happy in a heterosexual way? Could you imagine coming out publicly and saying that in this cultural climate? When I have talked to people, and there are a number of them in this church, about that, would you be willing to do a testimony? Would, would you want to talk to high school students? The, the, the look of fear in their eyes of what might happen to them personally, if they were to do that, um, tells me everything I need to know about this. Um, however, 
Okay, let me explain this, and I'll go back to something else in just a second. Um, Stanton Jones, when he did, he's, the, he's one of the provosts at Wheaton in psychology. When he went to the University of Arizona, he studied under a woman who was both a sexuality expert and a depression expert. And he went to study depression, but when, because he studied under this woman, he actually sort of became an expert in both. And when he, they were studying depression, here's what they found. They found that there were lots of people in the American public who got depressed, who experienced depression and sought counseling for it. But what they found was that the phenomenon of depression was stronger and weaker, depending on the person, and the reason they were depressed that the counselor could figure out varied widely, right? Some people lost a loved one. They had trouble dealing with it. They felt very depressed. Other people, there was like a bona fide chemical imbalance. Like there was just something going on in the brain and they had needed medication. Other people were deeply unhappy with their lives. They feel like it it wasn't turning out like they wanted to or their marriage wasn't good. And it caused an overall long-term depression. Now, what they found then was you can get in human beings a very physiological, very deeply felt, very driven personal phenomenon that actually arose for completely different reasons. One of the reasons I believe a bunch of very intelligent people have spent many millions of dollars to try to figure out how homosexuality happens and have not been able to do it, I think is because there is no such thing as homosexuality. There are only homosexualities, and we have no idea how many. And I think that's one of the reasons why some people find it very easy to change and other people find it nearly impossible. A person who isn't happy with their marriage and depressed, if you can fix their marriage over time, they get happier about it. People who have a chemical imbalance, you can counsel them all day, and they don't get better. And so depending on the provenience of the same-sex attraction affects dramatically whether or not somebody is capable of change. Now, the reason why this is important is for two reasons. One is you need to understand why people in the pro-gay movement are so adamantly against any kind of therapy for anyone with same-sex attractions to change, even if they deeply want that therapy, which is the only people to whom it's provided in America. Now, not true in the past. Here's why, for two reasons. One is the methodology that was used historically in America was pretty barbaric. What's normally, what's normally quoted was, um, was a therapy um, done in the Mormon West with gay men that used very strong electric th- shock therapy that amped up the longer the same-sex attractions existed. And the suicide rate for gay men especially um, who engaged in reparative therapy is what it's called, or reparative therapy, was higher than the population of gay men in general. And so the feeling was, um, it doesn't work and people kill themselves. How mean do you have to be? How heterosexually biased do you have to be to keep doing this? Okay, it makes people enormously unhappy, it doesn't work, and people kill themselves. So the, the latent fear within the gay community is, their, son, their sons and daughters, will, some of them are going to kill themselves, right? Now, what this has produced is a climate in which the therapies for this, which are essentially in the Stone Age, can't advance. That's what this has produced. So same-sex attracted people in America who wish to engage in actually useful reparative therapy that actually works— are engaging with a psychological community that is doing virtually no research in this, 
and doing nothing to advance in their capabilities, which scientifically is enormously hypocritical because when science can't do something, what does it always tell us? We just need a little more time and money, right? We'll figure this out. It's just need time and money. That's all. We'll do more research. We'll do more experiments. We just need time and money. We'll figure this out. Trust in science. And yet, in this case, the answer is absolute censorship. Do not pass go. Do not collect grant money. You cannot study this. You cannot do this. We will take away your license. It's illegal in California. Right? And I think we need to understand why the LGBT community is terrified of any kind of therapy that would help people change their sexual orientation if they want to receive that therapy. We need to understand that. And at the same time, I'm for freedom. I think people should be free to seek what they wish, especially if we're going to be a pluralistic and liberal society. Otherwise, I think it's just hypocrisy. And I think it's morally wrong. Let me say one more thing on that. But what that means is when you engage with a same-sex attracted person who believes in Jesus or who doesn't, you cannot have this default that like if you follow Jesus, you're going to flip. That's not true. It might be true. It's not necessarily true. And it doesn't actually matter for whether or not they can follow Jesus. The third is, what do I do when I'm invited to a same-sex wedding? Um, now that this has kind of gone through the courts and it doesn't look like the Supreme Court's going to take it up, it's legal. Same-sex weddings are legal in Wisconsin. It looks like they're going to be pretty widely legal. I expect them to be legal most everywhere. I expect our church to get sued in the next 15 years. I do expect us to lose our building in the next 15 years. But we'll just do church a different way. Um, we'll see. However, um, the, the question I think for the Christian is this. When you go to a wedding— what are you doing? Okay, now you can try to keep it vague and say, well, we're just loving the people. But that's actually not what you do when you go to a wedding. Okay, now I'm assuming that I'm assuming a Christian wedding. Okay. Um, what you do when you go to a wedding is you do three things. One, you witness the marital vows. In witnessing the marital vows, you affirm that what is happening is a wedding and therefore creating a marriage. And third, you are promising to spiritually interact with that as a upholder of that union as conjugal marriage, right? And in doing so, you are celebrating. It's a celebration, right? It's a, it's a wedding. Weddings are celebrations. That's why we dress up, right? Now, here's the thing. I do not know how with any integrity someone can go to something that they witness its validity— implicitly affirm its validity and celebrate it. I don't see how you celebrate something without affirming it. I just don't, I think that's an incoherent idea. I think, I think the statement, Bill celebrated but did not affirm X is an incoherent statement, okay? I don't see how you can do that. And I don't believe biblically that you can believe that a gay marriage is actually a marriage. Now, it is something And we should affirm it as something. There are goods in two people uniting with each other and taking responsibility for each other and saying that they're going to care for each other and be by each other's bedside. And there are moral goods within that union. But the label of the union itself as a marriage, especially from a Christian perspective, is a falsehood. 
And therefore, I do not see how a Christian can witness, affirm, and celebrate as part of the Christian, as part of the wedding. You might be able to go to the reception. Um, and some, some people have asked me, Nick, what if it isn't Christian? Because I, where I'm really strong on this is if it's in a church being done by a minister with Christian language. That's where I'm really strong on this. Now, if you say, well, it's a civil union, it's out in a park, some guy in overalls is going to do it. Um, like, I don't, I don't think it's going to be religious at all. There's no religious content. I don't know if I would go, but if you came to my house and asked me about it, I'd probably say, you're going to have to make a decision about that. Does that make sense? That those are somewhat different. Um, I don't think I would change my mind, but my adamance, my clarity of thinking would be very different. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and you probably need to know that I will, I will go to jail before I do a same-sex wedding. You should know that. And I'll be nice about it. Okay. And you'll be responsible to take care of my family if that happens. I'm dead serious about that. Dead serious about that. You will be responsible to take care of my family if for any reason I act out of conscience and am put in prison. Okay. Um, Should I or we be more politically active in fighting the whole gay rights thing, especially gay marriage? Um, People ask me that a lot. I have a lot of people um, come to me from the conservative side of things. Nick, here's this thing, this printout I got from these people. Um, Fewer people from the more liberal side of things. But I get the Wisconsin Council of Churches stuff all the time. Hey, why don't you guys be part of this? And um, one, I'm going to talk about the church and society January 18th. Okay? This is a small part of that. Two, I think the majority of our effort should be used in terms of pro-life because I don't think it's close at all the moral place of extinguishing human lives and people having same-sex weddings. I don't think those are close at all. And I'll just tell you this. If I sat down with President Obama, and President Obama said this to me, okay, like I was like Mitch McConnell or something, and he goes, listen, I'll give you no-fault divorce if you give me gay, gay weddings. Like, we'll get rid of the no-fault divorce laws so that it'll be very difficult to get out of a marriage, so that people will have to take marriage enormously more seriously and the person who least cares about the wedding, about the marriage, won't have the easiest way out anymore. But you have to give me gay marriage. I would do that in a second. A second. I would say I still don't agree with the truthfulness of it, but politically, yes. Because pro-gay people are right when they say, how can you be so big on being against gay marriage when divorce is so rampant within Christian culture? Now, it's about 25% less rampant in evangelical culture, people who read the Bible and go to church twice a month or more. It's actually not near as rampant among evangelicals as outside the evangelical church. That's just a fact. However, you know, a 24-something percent divorce rate is higher than zero. And I I believe that that's a much bigger focus. And helping helping, um, demographics that don't marry— is societally much more important than resisting gay marriage, in my view, okay? So, but we'll deal with that another time. Second thing, if if we're going to live in a pluralistic liberal culture, which we are, we are going to have to advocate for freedom for all people. 
And so I believe that we have to advocate, just like I've said when we talked about praying for the persecuted church, I've said, listen, you, can't, you need to pray for Christians who are being persecuted in Pakistan. You need to do that because they're your brothers in Christ. But listen, you also have to pray for the Baha'is that are being jailed in Iran. They're people who as human beings have a God-given right to freedom of religion and conscience. Right? This is how this relates to this, right? If we believe in freedom of conscience such that we let people sin all the time, and the only time we stop that is when they are not having a negative effect on other people, because you could argue we shouldn't have trash pickup once you go down that road of logic. You have to say we stop people when they specifically and directly attack another person's well-being. Directly, right? Very hard time arguing that against gay marriage. But you also have to say yes, and you have to allow for freedom of conscience. You have to. And those have to stand side by side with each other, and you have to find a way to affirm them both. Listen, if our country affirms freedom of conscience in the number one most important duty of a citizen, which is, anybody want to take a guess? Number one most important civil duty of a citizen, that as a citizen you must do this. Anybody? Go to war. Go to war. If you are part of a polis, a group of people organized politically together for your mutual well-being, the number one most immediate responsibility of the citizen is to defend that people from outside annihilation. If you are called upon to do it fairly. And yet, for the entire history of our country, we have allowed for conscientious objection. If somebody says, listen, I do not believe it is right in any circumstance to take a life. I am a pacifist. Can I have another thing to do? Right? And during things like World War II and the Vietnam War, we put those people in mental institutions to serve there. And in the other things, we put them places and we said, yes, we didn't kill them. We didn't put them on the front line so they'd get killed right away so they could pay for their pacifism. We allowed for freedom of conscience. We figured it out. And I believe we can figure out civilly and through the exertion of godliness publicly a way for us to be a blessing to all people in a way where we are unhypocritical and completely consistent and agree and consent with our neighbors to live in a strange union with each other. And we're going to be doing that for a while, looks like. And I also don't think that we should not be involved in any issue politically because people bully us to shut up. Now, I don't know exactly what the appropriate level of public engagement in politics is for a church. I don't really know that. I'm still working through that. I've been working through it for 20 years. However, I believe that right now, the idea is, you, if you're a Christian, you can be involved in political exchange and advocacy if and only if your views are right, and the views that are right are predominantly now blue. Now, when I was in college in the 90s, it was the other way. You should, shut, you should shut up if you're a Christian, if you're a Democrat. But if you're in the moral majority or the Christian coalition, then let's go for it. Now it's the opposite, frankly. And in both cases, I don't believe that we should make our decisions based on how people intellectually and emotionally bully us. We should be making it on a conviction of what it means to live faithfully in the city. And we should sort that out, and then we should act that way. Does that make sense? Okay, so now that we've been doing this for 53 minutes, a few—now th- here's the heart of the sermon, okay? 
Um, the, all the doors are unlocked if you feel like you really have to go, okay? I think this is important, though. The question is, okay, now with a same-sex person, how do I as a Christian faithfully interact with them? What do I actually do or don't do as I relate to people in my circle of influence who are same-sex attracted? So here's the things you should do, okay? One is just don't be wildly ignorant about the subject, okay? That's why we produced the blog. I think if you go through some of that stuff, you listen to the sermon a couple of times and the one we did a couple years ago, it probably will get you in a place where you won't see something ridiculously stupid, okay? Two, even though LGBT people in some senses have been a cultural adversary for people who are Bible-believing in a lot of ways, you can't treat them that way. Either as individuals or as a group. Okay, if you're not willing to turn the other cheek, so to speak, I didn't mean, that, I didn't mean to make that rhyme, um, or if you're not willing to, when your enemy asks for your coat, you give him your shirt too. You can't be a Christian, okay? You, you have to at least be trying to figure that out. And I know that sounds like being cultural doormats, and there are points where behind the flesh there needs to be bone. Yes, but you cannot treat your enemies like enemies. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean they're not your enemies. They may, in some sense, be your enemy. You don't have to pretend that's not true. You still have to love them. Jesus didn't say, pretend your enemies aren't your enemies. He said, love your enemies. Yes, they're your enemies. They may want to, you got to find a way to love them. Third is, don't treat other orientations as more disordered or homosexual sex as more sinful than your disordered orientations or more sinful than other sins. If, see, a lot of you, I say that because a lot of people in the church, resist a fully biblical notion of depravity, that we're sinful, so deeply, so broken, so in need of God. But if you don't believe that, you can't love gay people. You will be self-righteous. There's no way around it. You have to be sensible of your depravity and their worth, and vice versa. The fourth is, don't act like we know that much about same-sex attraction from the Bible or science. For all the studying that we've done, and for the few things that the Bible says, the Bible, it's like six passages. It basically says, this is part of sexual immorality. It's immoral. What you hear about sex in the Bible is true about this too. That's it. And then in science, we've spent all this time, all these decades, all, we still know very little. Let's not pretend like we know everything, like we have all the answers. Nobody does. But if somebody else, some secular person comes in and says, asks like they have all the answers, they're lying or they're ignorant. I'm just telling you. Most people don't know what they think they know. They've listened to Time magazine. They've heard a few things along the way. The press doesn't correct itself. That's just the nature of the public press. It's not really their fault, though it totally is. Um, it's just the way the culture is. And so things don't get corrected. And so we believe the, these false overstatements. And when people think they know a lot about this, they don't. They don't. Almost every study in the 90s and the early 2000s that you think you know what it says, almost none of them were able to be replicated. They were all overstated, almost without exception. And what we actually know is much different than you think. Okay? And that's true for Christians. Human beings just don't know that much about this. Everybody. Okay? Do. Here are things to do. One is offer non-condescending compassion. When you went to college, if you went to college, you were probably told that somewhere between 10 and 20% of the American public was gay or latently gay. That's totally false, okay? The, 
the largest number resembling reality is 3.5%, but that includes everybody who is same-sex attracted and everybody who's bisexual. Because if you're bisexual, you have same-sex attractions, right? So if you count everybody who has same-sex attraction, it's 3.5%. But a full half of those people are fully functionally bisexual. They could easily date somebody of the opposite sex, just as easily somebody of the same sex. It's totally fine. They could do that if they wanted to. So actually, stably, specifically same-sex attracted people, it's 1.7% of the population, right? And so all the people who are a little afraid that everybody's going to take over, they go, oh, but here's the problem. Well, here's what that means. Same, specifically, predominantly same-sex attracted people are an incredible minority. Do not mistake public clout for personal community and inclusion, right? There are a lot of people in our culture that we pay great lip service to and then fully exclude. How many people in here are pro-poor? This is participatory. Who's pro-poor? Anybody? Six of us. Okay, I quit. All right, I quit High Point Church, right? Hopefully all of us are on some level pro-poor, right? Yeah, I mean, but do they even think we are? Like, they don't, I mean, they don't think we are, right? And See, there's, there's lots of people we go, oh, that's great, or that's fantastic, or I'm for them. And here's the thing. No, we're not. We are, but they don't get included. But here's the thing you need to know about same-sex people. They are this, they are a very tiny minority. You don't think that they feel embattled. They do. Just, just get on the website, go to the UW gay lesbian thing, and go to one of their poetry readings and just listen to them. Don't say a word. Just listen. And what you will hear are people who feel embattled and bullied and broken and pushed around and hurt. That's how they feel. And, it's, and so you have to be able to offer a non-condescending, real compassion. The second is, you need to ha- offer a balanced and truthful theology, which is what this whole sermon and the other one was about, so you'll have to listen to those. Three is, you need to see the similarities of your struggles against sin to connect with, but also don't minimize the differences. So with my friend, um, when we got together and talked, we both talked about our struggles with, um, with sexual sin and with purity. We both have them. They're very profound for both of us. And yet, then he talked about his struggle with loneliness and my struggle with wanting to be alone. Totally opposite. And so when we're interacting with people in friendship, we have to recognize there's some similarities and we can connect on those similarities, but we also need to be ready to be told, my experience is different from yours. And then we have to be soft on the inside, hard on the— Soft on the outside, hard on the inside when we engage with those. Four is um, offer family inclusion. And okay, can I offend you for just a second? Okay. I know this statement I might make may not be true. Okay. This is an intuition of mine, and it may be false. Okay. I feel like the last vestige of heterosexual homophobia in the general evangelical church may be the belief that gay men and women, particularly gay men, because their orientation, we look at it as a kind of perversion of the sexual self, and because we do, on some level, think of it as differently, we're actually afraid that there will be some kind of perverted relationship with, with boys and children. I think there is some of that. I think there's a sense of, like, well, we need to be protective, and we don't— and I know where that comes from. That comes from, like, our own depravity. It comes from the fact that the early gay male movement in the 80s had a—I mean, Foucault was a pedophile, and he argued for why that was okay. Like, I, it has a complicated history. Here's the problem. Everybody's a pervert. Every parent has to protect their kids, okay? If I come to your house, there's a level that every parent should still protect their kids. And yet, 
create an open and loving space in which all kinds of people come in and out and bless and teach and act and mess up and so on in a way that we still watch over the nurture and admonition and care of our children. And see, if you don't get o- if we don't get over that, then we cannot invite all people into the shalom, the peace, the love and justice of the family. And we're, and we're creating them not in vain, but percentagely in vain. 30% or something of what they're meant for we're not doing. And God puts single people, especially people who are single long-term, in families, not just, not just in friendships, but in families. And who, if they're trying deeply to be faithful to Christ, is going to be the most long-term single celibate person? It's going to be the same sex-attracted person. And if there's no familial hospitality, we, we, we're not, we won't be who we have to be. Lastly, we need to give and interact. I, I believe, I agree with Wesley Hill, who wrote, he's, uh, he wrote the best um, I'm a Gay Evangelical, let me tell you about a book that I know of. And he's writing a book right now on friendship because his argument is the evangelical church, yes, yes, all of culture is losing its understanding of marriage and what it really is, but what we've already totally lost is a theology of friendship. In 1980, John Boswell, who was a going-to-mass-every-day gay Catholic, uber-liberal, studied at Yale, went to Mass every day, okay? He was trying to deal with this whole thing, and he found this rite in the medieval church called the, it's called the Andelphophilios or something like that. I can't remember the Greek for it. But it was this rite in which two men came to the church for a union ceremony. And he said, look, the church hasn't always been anti-gay. There was a time when the church had its own gay man marriage celebration. And he wrote this whole book about it, and people were like, this is kind of interesting. It's, it's totally wrong, okay? But you could almost get how he got that, right? Like, how weird would it be for you if we had a, a service at High Point, right? Where, like, Nick and Taya would come up here, and we would do, like, this ritual where they would essentially be blood brothers, They would have a friendship the rest of their life where they were bound by honor and duty before God to be there for each other in every moment. They could not break the friendship. The friendship would endure. It was was almost similar to marriage, right? You could understand if this culture of people just assumed that was somehow homoerotic, right? And yet, the church for hundreds of years had the Philadelphias, the brotherly love ceremony where men would commit themselves in covenantal friendship, unbreakable before God and each other, with each other, that they would always take care of each other, always fight for each other, always be with each other. And it didn't always have military overtones. And that's how the church understood friendship. And I would argue that the single people in our church, and remember, the news, I don't know if you saw the news, just this last week I read a news source, that half of the American adult public is single. That was not true 20, 30 years ago. It was like 20%. Half of the American adult, of American adulthood is single. And if we don't have a doctrine and practice of biblical friendship that is deeply covenantal and driven, what, you see the problem? It's a huge problem. And this isn't just about same-sex attraction, but it is the primary loving service we should be offering same-sex attracted people covenantal, familial, hospitable, deep friendship. And non-sexually incredibly intimate friendship. And especially of the sex they have trouble getting along with. Have you seen, you've seen gay men who have lots of women friends 
not a lot of male friends, right? What, what most gay men need desperately is an incredibly intimate, non-sexual male friendships. I mean, God bless the women, but this, they need that. It's very important. And um, we have to recapture that as a whole church, and then it will greatly bless and benefit our same-sex attracted brothers, sisters, children, friends. Let's pray. Father, um, yeah, I probably said more than people wanted to hear, and it's, we still didn't talk about half the issues related to this, and um, we pray, God, that you would just, you would make us more faithful, that we would see more, that we would be obedient to more, that we would be more loving and more compassionate, more empathetic, um, more wise, more biblically focused, more, uh, we just, we, Father, we want to be more substantive, we want to be deeper, we want to be more loving. We just want to be more like Jesus. We, that's the shorthand for all this, Father. We want to be more like Jesus. Would you please help us? Pray in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Thank you.